The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Thursday night at Goodison, Toffee stay up. While Everton get a pat on the back and one fan gets put on his back by Pat, we look at the battle still to be decided in the final 90 minutes, which is all of them. We ask if Chelsea, Watford and Leicester Saints could turn out to be the highlights, salute great commentary and the departing Mike Dean and preview Barcelona-Leon, the Women's Champions League final. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Friday the 20th of May, listener. So lovely to be back with you again in the company today of Duncan Alexander, uh, Charlie Eccleshare, and also Don Hutchison. All right, boys. Hello. Hello. All right. Morning. Don, thank you for joining us today. Yes, James. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, it is Friday morning. It's a special show, you know, because the football, the, the Thursday night football... And the stuff coming up this Sunday, when for the first time ever in the Premier League era, the title, the Champions League places, survival, and most especially the Europa League, Europa Conference League places, will all be decided. The greatest Premier League final weekend ever? Well, theoretically it could be. I mean, we, we're obviously 10 years on from Aguero, so the way that you know the power of 10 works, then something amazing should happen on Sunday, by law. Indeed. Right. Martin Tyler with a strangled yell of Cuchinu, perhaps. <laughs> Man City, who are one point clear, taking on Aston Villa. If they lose that game 6-0, right, and Liverpool draw 5-5 with Wolves, <laughs> we'd get a playoff match. Wouldn't that be amazing? And where would it be? I don't know, Don. Where would it be? Anybody know? Kings Somewhere Meadow? exactly between the two grounds. I mean, the only 5-5 that's ever happened in the Premier League was on a final day. So That is true. There right. is precedent for this. The only perfect hat-trick scored against Manchester United by future Indeed. Man United player Romelu Lukaku. Mm. Wow. West Brom. Yeah. yeah. Similarly, by the way, relegation still to be sorted out and only goal difference between Leeds and Burnley. If Leeds lose 1-0 to Brentford on Sunday... And Burnley lose 28 goals to seven against Newcastle. <laughs> there will be a playoff for who stays in the Premier League. And again, I don't know where that would be held. Well, no, it leads. That's feasible. It's possible, isn't it? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about all those, all those games and more. Uh, but the, the, the big news from Thursday night is that the relegation battle is now between Burnley and Leeds. Everton now have their feet up after securing their place in the Premier League next season with a stirring come-from-behind victory over Palace. Don, this was a, a, a Premier League classic with goals and controversy, a pitch invasion. The only thing it didn't have was a, a TV audience in the UK because it wasn't broadcast. Oh, Luckily, you were commentating on it for international viewers and, and you can tell us all about it. What, 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 oh, what, what a, a ride, James. I mean... Go back a couple of months ago very quickly and I thought Everton were doomed. I thought they were gone. I didn't think they lacked any leaders. I couldn't say a way out. And then somehow the last month and a half, Frank's got his men fully focused. I think it's been it's one of them when you go down to rock bottom, you find something from somewhere. And the wins against Man United and Chelsea, the results against Leicester, put them in this position. And then they lose against Brentford a few days ago, going down to nine men, two men sent off. You're thinking, right, this is their last chance because away from home, Everton have been awful. Arsenal last day of the season, haven't won there or one win in something like 26 years. You think, 
that's not going to happen. So one more lifeline, and then I'm commentating on the game, and Crystal Palace for 45 minutes were like Brazil. They were amazing, two 0 up, and I'm thinking that's it, it's done. Like there's no way back here. And then somehow Frank Lampard's got Deli Ali stripped at half time, got him on, and it was the old Deli Ali. He was amazing. He made things happen. One goal back at the Gladys Street end from Michael Keane, another one from Richarlison, and then one with five minutes to go from Dominic Calvert-Lewin. It was just incredible scenes. Gray sends it in brilliant ball! Dominic Calvert-Lewin! A comeback of enormous importance for Everton! It was a kind of Henrik Larsson against Bulgaria-esque diving, mm. diving header. Magnificent goal. Sensational. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, mm. he got called out, I think, after the game. I think one of the reporters asked him about his loyalty uh, and where's he been all season. And I think he shut them down pretty quickly with that goal because, you know, I was part of a 97-98 team, James, when we stayed up on the last day of the season by goal difference against Coventry. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say adore. That's, that's a pretty strong word. But the Everton fans never forget. And they'll remember this group of players, rightly or wrongly, because the first part of the season, awful. But the scenes last night, my word, it was just incredible. Everton should never be in this position again. But we've said that once or twice already. Well, indeed. Indeed. Speaking of scenes, speaking of fans, of course, the Dominic Calvert-Lewin uh, goal, which put Everton ahead, was, even though there were, what, five, six minutes still left on the on the clock, uh, was um, followed by a mass pitch invasion. Given what had happened a couple of nights before at the city ground between uh, Nottingham Forest and, and Sheffield United... Um, there were some kind of strong views about how good an idea this this was, Don. Mm. Well, it's not great. I mean, but I mean, what do we do? How 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 do stewards stop a pitch invasion? It must be a nightmare scenario for them. There's probably what I mean, fifty stewards max sat around the pitch up against a couple of thousand fans. That if they want to get on, they're going to get on. Um, the scenes weren't good last night. It was an ugly look. I understand it. As I said, when the the fans come on for the second time, it was in normal time. That was the worry. You know, they came on and then there was five minutes to go. Then it took a few minutes. Then all of a sudden there was seven minutes of injury time. And it was sort of inevitable because it happened in 97. It happened quite a few times. As you said, the Forest FU game the nights before. I don't know how you stop it. Um, but in the end, I understood it when they, got, when they got on the pitch, James. I understand the relief and the emotion. But then I missed it because I was in the car coming home. Then I seen the footage when I got indoors. And it was rather ugly. You know, you go all the way back to all the way back to Monica Seles back in the 90s, which could happen again. And that's the last thing we ever want to see because the only fix then is going back to, I think it was the 80s, when we had um, the, the, the fences around the pitch. Yeah. That's the last thing we need. No, in, indeed. Have you ever been on the pitch as an opposition player, as an away player uh, in a pitch invasion? I have. Um, I've got to say, when I, when I have been on the pitch, it didn't feel as though it was threatening. It didn't feel as though... Um, there was any malice. Um, I've been on the pitch, obviously, like I said, in 97, playing for Everton, so the Ever Evertonian fans are on the pitch where you know you're pretty secure. But that couldn't have been comfortable for the Palace players last night. Right. And the footage released of the fan getting too close to Patrick Vieira, that would have been a worry. That would have been yeah. a worry for, for Patrick. That, that, that was ugly scenes that you, you just don't need because that fan, any fan, could be carrying anything. And then that's the last thing we ever need in football as a fan getting on the pitch. That's why I mentioned Monica Sellers back in the yeah. 90s because that was the lowest of the low. That was that was despicable. Yeah, extraordinary scenes. Extraordinary. Patrick Vieira, who's basically just walking across, if you haven't seen it, um, it 
at the risk of sounding like a rubbernecker, it's worth seeking it out. He's striding across the pitch. This fan gets in his face, thrusts a middle finger in his face, repeatedly swears at him. And at a certain point, Patrick just tips and, and turns around and eventually kicks him and knocks him to the ground. At which, And he's right in the middle of, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of Everton fans, but he's completely unfazed by the fact that he is kind of one against many. And then a, a bunch of Everton supporters kind of circle him and usher him usher him away. But it's just, whether there's a danger of knives, etc., a la Sellers or whatever, nobody needs that while they're going about their 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 job I would would suggest but um that's one thing uh in meantime it's a night to celebrate what Everton achieved and to an extent celebrate what Frank Lampard's achieved or, or is getting them to 16th which is where they were when he started is that not worth celebrating no see I I, I never subscribe to to people that think you shouldn't be celebrating when you've just stayed up because I understand the, the the sentiment and I understand what people are getting at why should a club like Everton finish 16th and celebrate that's you know but people don't realize the emotion and the hard work and the graft that you're putting in and the stress you've got to go through as a manager as a player especially as a fan watching it so at the end of the game you know why not celebrate it's something that Everton should never be in this scenario again but I understand it the emotions are quite raw you know, there was a real possibility a month or so ago that Everton were going to go into the championship, which would have been disastrous. They probably wouldn't have come back for quite a while. But when you get that outpour of emotion, when the final whistle goes and you realise that your club's safe and the players especially are celebrating that all that hard work's come to fruition and have actually stayed in the Premier League, which is huge, hmm. I totally get it. Even at half past eight last night, it seemed like they were going down. Yeah, I've been there as a player. I've been there. I mean, what you know, people often ask me, James, about you know, if I could ever go back and have a minute of my football career again, mm. and I'll always go back to this point. And it was the game in '97 against Coventry on the last day of the season, and we came in after the game, Premier League survival, and Howard Kendall was my manager, who I absolutely adored. He was a father figure to me, and we come in, and all the players were celebrating after the game, but Howard wasn't there. And I asked Adrian Heath where the gaffer was, and he went, he's in the boot room, which when you come out of the home dressing room at Goodison Park, the boot room is the first door on the left-hand side. And I walked into the boot room, I knocked on the door, and it was pitch black. I knocked on the door again, I opened the door ajar, and there was just a little, little bit of light, a little bit of shade, and Howard was sitting in a chair in the boot room, and he was crying. He didn't want to be the man that took Everton down because of his history, his playing career, part of the Holy Trinity, being a manager there, legendary manager. And the two of us walked to each other. He got off his chair. We walked and we embraced for a good minute or so. And he was gone. He was in tears. I was gone for him. And that was the, that was, sometimes you're in the games, or some, like you're in the game for a lot of reasons. You're in the game because you want to be a professional footballer. You're in the game because you want to win trophies. But some of these memories you can never buy. And that was a minute where I just thought after that game, it was just perfect with Howard. But the rest of the boys were all celebrating in the home dressing room. And I totally get it. I think that's a really interesting point Don raises because we do tend to think of, um, well, often we think of pressure as going for titles or whatever. And the worst case scenario there is you don't win a title. You know, one of Liverpool or City will come second. But the pressure that, as you've said, the players and the manager must feel in this instance, knowing how catastrophic this would be if they went down and that they would always be those players. Frank Lampard would always be that manager. That is, a, I mean, how suffocating and stressful that must have been. Um and then, yeah, like you say, the relief then when you do somehow escape. And it doesn't mean Everton are happy with where they are and being 16th, but it just would have been so disastrous that you can understand the outpouring of emotion. 
No, I think you're right, Charlie. I think also it's been you know pretty widely reported. If Everton had gone down, they were in like serious, serious financial you know trouble. They they could have spiraled a, a long way down. Um, I remember Wickham when they only went went out of the league in twenty twenty fourteen. Um, what? No, no, no. It's an absolutely fair comparison. Let's no, no, no. <laughs> the, the, but it was it was known inside the club then that if they went down, that pretty much the club would go out of business. And that pressure, the, you know, I think relegation. Is you celebrate relegation in a more primal way, or surviving relegation in a more primal way than than winning a trophy? Is it's it's existential? Where I think, you know, winning trophies is just kind of fun. Mm. So it is a different emotion, I think. Yeah, never more alive than when you're battling for survival. Crikey! I was just going to say on on the pitch evasion point. I do uh, obviously it's awful they keep happening and or that they keep happening and there are these unsavoury incidents. But I do find it heartening at least that there's more sympathy for people like Vieira. You know, I feel like a few years ago there would have been a lot of, I'm sorry, but you just cannot do that. You cannot do, you cannot react like that. Whereas now I think there is a kind of acceptance of, it's a human response to a really difficult situation. Um, And I think generally there hasn't really been that much condemnation of Vieira and nor should there be. No, although I think probably the FA will examine the footage in that. Yeah. Mm. So on the subject of Billy Sharp, already the, 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 intruder responsible has been jailed for 24 months that's extraordinarily quick uh there you go don thank you so much for joining us then shedding a little light on the events at goodison thanks james the river dirty yeah indeed so enjoy the, <laughs> the remarkable end of season and the eventual playoffs thanks guys thanks for having me you're listening to the totally football show sponsored by paddy power and part of the athletic podcast network don hutchison Delhi alley i wasn't expecting that charlie no, it's not been um, the most successful move so far. But I've I've had this vision for a while of Delhi delivering Champions League football for Spurs uh, via Everton on the final day against Arsenal. And as it turns out, they might not need a favour from Everton. But it feels like Delhi, yeah, he's primed and ready now to to go and uh, yeah, go and uh, do some more damage to Arsenal. All right, Delhi delivery, like it. It was just sad to see such a, a momentous Premier League event happen from a, from trailing 2-0 and then winning 3-2. That was the first time Everton had ever been two behind at half-time and won a game. So um, In the Premier th- League? In the Premier League, yeah. It doesn't help my case at all. I mean, it was a weird one, this game not being on. I mean, I definitely felt I was at the wrong party as I sat through Aston Villa against Burnley, which was mm. sort of fine, but the, the score updates were coming in and they're kind of like, you will not believe what's happening <laughs> at Goodison Park. It's like, it'd be nice to see it in a way. Yeah. All right. Well, what you saw at Villa Park was a 1-1 draw between uh, the Villains and the Clarets. Ashley Barnes. Putting the visitors ahead with what would have heading towards what would have been a huge win. That was his first goal in 15 months and only Burnley's tenth penalty, Duncan, in five Premier League seasons. Put that in perspective. Same as uh, Bruno Fernandes took by himself last season. So um... just insane. Ashley Barnes, whose presence on the field was questioned by some observers after his uh, his elbow made significant contact with Tyrone Mings prior to that penalty. Yeah, you've seen them given, but mm. Burnley, they don't get many penalties, but they don't get many red cards either, so mm. it kind of mm. evens out on the justice department. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's nothing to say there whether they deserve them or the penalties or the red cards. So. Just, no one knows. 
Uh, Tarkovsky is back, though, to ease the worries at the back for Mike Jackson as Burnley head into this crucial final day encounter there at home to Newcastle. Burnley and Leeds going into this final day level on points. Burnley's goal difference is 20 goals better, though, than Leeds, which is why Leeds are in the bottom three. And while Burnley hosts Newcastle, Leeds go to Brentford. What do you think? Can you see many rays of light for Leeds supporters? It's a difficult one. I mean, they're having to draft in some extra uh, security, I think, because, you know, it's going to be quite a tense afternoon. Brentford obviously been in really good form. They, you know, since Christian Eriksen came, they've almost been a different team. And they've got nothing to play for but... You know, the excitement of heading into a second uh, Premier League season, possibly the last time they see Ericsson in the in the red and white stripe. So, yeah, it's gonna, it is pretty close. I think you could see Newcastle and Brentford both taking the lead, which would, you know, obviously not change matters, but it's going to be one of those where it is Depends quite by up how and... much. <laughs> True, yeah. If, if, um, racing to a 10 0 lead after a if you I tell you what, if Newcastle are fifteen goals up by half time, I will have questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd rather be playing Brentford than Newcastle, I think, at this point. Um, Would you just just given how good Newcastle looked on Monday night? Would you rather be playing Brentford at Brentford than Newcastle not in Newcastle? Though? Well, th- that is a good question, but I do worry. I mean, Leeds. I, I know at times the Ellen Road crowd have kind of carried them and they've ridden that wave, but they've also been extremely uh, some of the Leeds players have got extremely carried away and sort of flown into tackles and we've seen quite a lot of red cards and I do wonder if that it might almost get too frenzied for some of them Um, don't say that Charlie (laughs) we provoke the ire of of Everton supporters possibly justly with the suggestion back on Monday that maybe the atmosphere was getting too intense at Goodison and and, uh, yeah players were getting I mean there is the there is the possibility that Chris Wood returning to to Turf Moor could put Burnley down which is which would be sad but then Veghorst Veghorst is coming into form I feel I can I can sense it (laughs) he's um, getting closer yeah yeah Chris Wood one of uh, two former Burnley names who will be lining up against them Eddie Howe of course spent a uh, less than Less than successful 18 months at Turf Moor about a decade ago. Duncan, is Turf Moor a difficult place to go if you're in Newcastle? Um, not that difficult, no. So, I it's... They've won two of their last three visits. Those are yeah. the numbers. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, in some leagues, I think you could go Brentford and, and Newcastle will be like, I've not got much to play for. But I think that both Newcastle and Brentford will be desperate to win on in Sunday. In our Premier which, League? In our league. In our league, people want to win whatever the circumstance. But um, So it, make, it makes it a really intriguing uh, afternoon. I think, uh, unlike maybe some of the um, scenarios further up the table, I think this one probably will go back and forth throughout the day. Mm. I think that this season has reminded... I mean, there's always a thing... Um, it's different for the teams batting relegation, but the whole fighting for their lives thing is always held up as a, that's exactly who you don't want to be playing, which is often actually a bit of a fallacy when you look at the numbers. And the same is true of teams that have nothing to play for. Now, obviously, teams that have nothing to play for can go the way of on the beach, but they can also be 
very good. I mean, we've seen Brighton just go on this sort of weird rampage when they, in theory, should have absolutely nothing to play for. And they've just kind of gone and beaten Arsenal, Spurs, United, when I think everyone was, you know, a few weeks ago thinking, ah, great, Brighton, they've got nothing mm. to play for. Uh, and Brentford and Newcastle are fully in that sweet spot. We saw Newcastle absolutely brilliant on Monday night. Um, and, Brent- and Brentford have been in good form of late. So, I mean, I, you might think if you can go ahead against one of these teams, are they going to you know, absolutely give everything to get back into it. But I, I think we sometimes put a little bit too much importance on on some of those prejudices. Okay. Well, with the two sides level on points, Leeds need to better Burnley's results. So Burnley with a win are fine. With a draw, Leeds need to win at Brentford. You know, you can do the math. It's going to be a tense one and not just at the bottom end of the table because, of course, there's still the title to be decided. Let's move on to that next. Well, listeners, the title race will go to the last day of the season after Liverpool came from behind to pick up a gutsy three points at Southampton on Tuesday night. Massages and ice baths for the rest of the week is on the menu for Klopp's troops as they get the necessary or an or in ahead of their last game of what has been a remarkable campaign where there is still a faint hope of a quadruple. Wolves will be the visitors to Anfield on Sunday and are a 14 to 1 shot to win the game. Seems unthinkable that. Liverpool are 1 to 7 and the draw is 13 to 2. Now, Man City lie a single point ahead of the Merseysiders and no win sees them over the line. City are 1 to 7 to win the match. The draw is 7 to 1 and Aston Villa to win the match is 14 to 1. By the way, listeners, I'm resisting the urge to make a Stevie G slip up dad joke here as I'm better than that. Jack Grealish will have his hair looking soft and conditioned, you can be sure, for the visit of his old club. There's no way he'll celebrate if he scores against Villa. Liverpool fans will be looking for agent Gerrard to do them a favour of a lifetime. Can Stevie G and Coutinho inspire Villa to be the fly in City's ointment? Will that penalty miss from Mahrez at West Ham come back to haunt Pep? Man City are priced at 1-12 to lift the Premier League title, while Liverpool, who are waiting to pounce on any slight slip-up from City, are 9-2. In terms of the golden boot, folks, Mo Salah has 22 goals and leads the race by one. He's the 4-9 favourite. Hongman's son is only one behind, though, and with Spurs playing Norwich, and the fact that Salah may be kept on ice for Real Madrid the following week after a knock that he picked up at Wembley, maybe the South Korean is a bet at 6-4. Go on, my son. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Charlie, I noticed that you've got a book coming out on the 1st of September. I do, yes. The beautiful poetry, it's called The Beautiful Poetry of Football Commentary. And it's kind of like a anthology of poems. Kind of halfway to your word count with the title alone, I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is some relief. Um, Yeah, the, it's kind of like a poetry anthology, but instead of it being Wordsworth or the more recognised poems, the, the poems in inverted commas are famous bits mm. of football commentary. Really? With a, with mm. a kind of like a, some context and uh, analysis around? Exactly. So the poem is yeah, presented as uh, on one half of the page and then on the other side is me kind of close textual analysis of nice. the poem. 
and be that the kind of rhetorical devices they're employing and, and this sort of thing. So yeah. a did good you... way to finally put my Latin A level to good use. <laughs> no, no, I, I, absolutely. Did um, did you speak to any of the, you know, the, the protagonists of the, of the bomb? Moment? Yeah, I mean, I have done previously. I didn't specifically for this. I've spoken to quite a few of them about let their quite a lot of the entries. A little, well, I think we've we've heard commentators talking about their... It's not a book where commentators talk about their process or kind no. of, you know, how they're feeling at the time. It's more sort of evaluating their genius, I suppose, and kind of um, why it is that their words resonate so much. Um, yeah, that's kind of What's kind the of most... My, obscure bit of commentary would you say in the there are some there are some pretty obscure ones um like i mean there are quite a few foreign ones that to men such as yourself you'll be very familiar with um but you know not everyone will be so much and then into the realms of people like ray hudson i don't know if you're familiar with yeah so he's kind of a whole other world of football company like really quite extreme language that he uses um but i try and have a a kind of yeah a a range i mean there's there's some amazing stuff um the middlesbrough uefa cup run of 2006 um the local commentator who is an absolute legend of the game and uh yeah some of some of his exaltations sort of after full time you remember they went on that they kept having these amazing comebacks he manages to kind of yeah exactly he keeps sort of managing to top himself um, after each one and you think he's left himself nowhere to go it comes with rock and back shot the goalkeeper saves it Macaroni it's in the greatest comeback since Lazarus it's been completed Moshimo Macaroni El Gladiator some of those are my favourites. They're pretty spectacular. All right. I was Alistair Brownlee. You, what's your favourite bit of commentary, Charlie? What's the number one? Fa- I, I do think for, in a poetry context, where, yeah. you know, in a, as, as the book looks at, the Drury, um, Roma, Barcelona, the Greek gods is, is just utterly spectacular. But um, do, do you know what? I mean, I think he's an extraordinary man and a, and a lovely fellow as well. That's not, that didn't touch touch me because it was almost too classically learned it was almost too academic Mm. whereas and this is just kind of off the top of my head because it was really recent his reaction to Real Madrid's comeback against Man City I thought was Mm. absolutely spot on the way he kind of you can hear it's there's a kind of a he lets it breathe and then there's a reaction then another reaction and then he arrives at the alliteration of the Bernabeu Bedlam I I Mm. thought it was just the rhythm it was 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 grand but Toughest job in television, possibly toughest job in football. I don't know. Talking and making sense for 90 minutes. Well, I think as well, James, what you touched on there, and I talk about this in the forewords of the book, is people do feel quite strongly about football commentators and piece of commentary. Like at the Athletics Christmas party last year, I just remember, like there were a bunch of us and this conversation went on for ages, you know, talking about favourite commentators, favourite pieces of commentary, why some people are underrated, why some people don't quite do it for them. Like, they, they really do matter an almost disproportionate amount. Um, mm. So I did enjoy kind of getting stuck into that and trying to understand why some resonates and some doesn't. Because like you say, some of it can feel, like Drury's a good example, some of it can feel almost too stylized. I mean, he did this uh, sort of when Ronaldo made his return to Manchester United and because that was at the start of the game that did feel very scripted but yeah Mm. the best is when he 
yeah, kind of lets it all hang out, and uh, it it just you know, God bless the Premier League and all of that sort of stuff. Um, There's a jury one from the 2002 World Cup, which is I think he says goal, golden goal, has ever a goal been more golden? Which it's. It, I say out randomly at points, just <laughs> at least once a week. Like I literally walk in the dog and just be saying it because it's it's got so embedded That's in my lovely, psyche. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm quite and a fan of the single word "hello" from Clive Tildesley. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that there's mm. just so there's so there's so much to enjoy and such a range as well. You look at someone like Barry Davis, John Motson, mm. compared to someone like Drury, who's the most kind of obvious poet i suppose amongst them but even you know john motson the um crazy gang beats the culture club after the like i you know and james james is grimacing if you think that's too pre-planned but even if it is pre-planned still, yeah no still it's a good. great line it is good it is good um but yeah if if that sort of thing floats your boat you can pre-order it already there's a link on my pin tweet and on my twitter profile brilliant i look forward to to that charlie magnificent of course we could get some uh, classic bits of commentary etc and so on this weekend not least with the title race which currently sees yes man city only one point ahead of liverpool but what six goals of goal difference better off as the two sides prepare to face villa for man city stephen Gerrard's villa that's right liverpool meanwhile are at home to wolves fresh from there uh, well, their reserve team's 2-1 win at Southampton back on Tuesday. What's the supercomputer say, Duncan? Supercomputer says for the title, City 80.5%, Liverpool 195 Um mm, Says Burnley 16, Leeds 84, and then top four, Tottenham 84, Arsenal 16. So right. the incumbents are the, um, the favourites. But how can you codify Stephen Stephen Gerrard's football heritage? How, how does that fit in your binary go, world? Print, slip, go to line twenty, something like that. Run. All right. So is that a bit basic? science? Charlie, for a more human view, what do you think? I mean, the problem is uh, since in the Pep Guardiola City era, anyway, in the, in the Premier League, they are the opposite of a. We don't like to make things easy for ourselves, do we? <laughs> yeah. I mean. If anyone's going to go 2 nil up after 20 minutes and it be completely dead, it's this Pep Guardiola City team. Um, really? Yes. I mean, you know, as much as I hope that doesn't happen for the sake of drama, um, I just sort of suspect it will. I mean, Villa also played on Thursday night and, yeah, City are just incredibly efficient, incredibly good at winning these sorts of games. And I think, yeah, it's only twice before the lead has changed hands in the title race on the final day. Um, really? The first being 11-12, yeah. And then very briefly in, tw- in 2018-19 when Liverpool were ahead of City. But, that was but City game, again, City, that was good. City went behind, but very, very quickly in a kind of City Aguero. way, got it back. They were two on up, yeah. yeah so it, it, it didn't feel... All, and That's then they the got hipster's third. Aguero final day goal, that one. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Not the only final day that um, Aguero has been decisive in. So... Mm-hmm. I'd love, I'd love for it to, for the lead to change hands at least, or for it to be tense. Um, but I think my, my suspicion is is around in line with um, Duncan's numbers there. Okay, which might even seem generous, nineteen percent chance for Liverpool when you consider that Villa have got one of the worst away records in the league. Only Norwich, Watford, and Everton 
have done worse. And the last 12 meetings between these two sides, they've not won any mm. of them, Villa. They've had a draw once and got beaten 11 times. City won actually the last 11 league meetings at the Etihad. It's not good, is it? Ooh, plus uh, star England midfielder up against the former club, Jack Grealish. The big question is if Villa do pull it off, should Gerard get a title winner's medal from Liverpool? <laughs> Quite nice, isn't it? Mm. The ultimate classy touch. Yeah. From the Premier League. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I agree with Charlie. I think we saw it after the Champions League exit. It was like, oh, this, this, could, uh, this could affect City mentally. Mm. Ah, we'll just beat Newcastle by five <laughs> goals. It's fine. Yeah, but West Ham? Hmm? Yeah. Sure, though, even that, that was, you know, that was an impressive comeback ultimately to, to slightly change the picture. The, I mean, the, the, it is slightly concerning. I, I think one thing, as much as, you know, it's fashionable for, to deride people for bigging up the Premier League, but one thing the Premier League has been very good at is not having one team entirely dominate. And obviously no one retained it from United in 2009 to City doing it in 2019. And I think that is something to be applauded at a time where PSG, Juve, uh, Bayern Munich are absolutely hoovering up titles in other leagues. But well, yeah, blah, 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 back back a bit, Charlie. Juve didn't win last year. They're certainly not winning it this year. Sure, but... Uh, you're deploying the Lille gambit. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all, because Inter won it last year and could win it this year, but we'll only find out in an incredibly tense and exciting final day uh, set of matches. Five o'clock, and it's live, funnily enough, on BT Sport. Uh, sure, but Inter you, you must... Be, no, hang on. No, so Inter only two <laughs> points behind. And uh, and while, while Milan have to go to Sassuolo, and they've got to get something there, and Simone and Zaghi would love it, etc. The thing is, you mentioned days where... There have been a lot of final day upsets in, in, mm. in Serie A, and the last two key ones have both involved Simone and Zaghi, who is the Inter manager. I, I mean, it's impossible to call. But back to your point, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't deny for, for a second that in this instance, it's a thrilling title race. But in that context, in that sort of decade period, when Juve won nine, was it nine titles in a row? Yeah, uh, and, and Bayern Munich were doing something similar and PSG right. were, were also. I just mean that it, I, I think that was one thing that was quite good about the Premier League was that for all the big six and all that dominance you right. didn't have the same team winning year after year what this would mean if City win they'll have won it four years out of five and all of a sudden that USP is uh, is slightly going which would be a shame because I think it is good to have different teams win the title definitely oh yeah definitely but I, I would say also I feel that once it's been won it's kind of okay but I think it's that mid-season thing when you glance you're like oh I'll just check the league earn table and then you know <laughs> oh PSG seem to have lost a few games recently oh there's still 14 points yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's when it really hits home the, when, the, when the, their fans are in outright mutiny and <laughs> yeah. they've just won the title like ah oh, this there seems something maybe not quite right here yeah if, yeah if City fans were booing the team because they only won the title by a point um you know that, that then we'd be in real trouble uh, but yeah, I mean, it, also, as I'm sure lots of people will say, Liverpool to have made it this close a race is, well, um, is, is amazing. Well, if Liverpool win on the final day, which is feasible and, and come second, they'll, they're the only team that's ever lost one game in a season and not won the title in 2018-19. They're the only team to ever lose only two games in a season and not win the title back in 08-09. And obviously they could, could repeat that this season. So, you know, Liverpool have been unlucky in that context. They haven't lost in this in 2022 in the league, have they? Which is 
you know, she's pretty amazing. Right. They both deserve a lot of credit. Whichever picks up the title, very nicely put. Liverpool lost three two at West Ham, and, and City drew two two at West Ham, and that's that is essentially the title. There it is. London Stadium was the decisive, the mm. decisive thing. Blame David Moyes, not me. Um, what about the top four? Should we applaud both Spurs and Arsenal for making it such a thrilling race for Champions League qualification? Well, Charlie, this is something. It's been a bit of a bugbear of mine. This kind of the race that no one wants to win, aren't they? Awful and inconsistent because top four teams are inconsistent. That's why they're battling for fourth place in a twenty-team division rather than going for the title. Mm. And and this could be borne out by the fact that both Arsenal and Spurs, if they win, will have more points than the average for the previous three seasons. So that tells you that they're actually a little bit better than what we've seen the last few years. And then if you if you expand that to the last ten years. I think it's 71 points, which is what Spurs um, are most likely going to end up with, assuming they win. So it, it it's just been a very typical top four race. You know, you, you're talking about flawed teams because that's why they're going for fourth. Um, and I think both teams, you know, at the start of the season, everyone had the top four as United, Chelsea, Liverpool, City. It wasn't even that there was almost no one was going for Tottenham. Um, and Arsenal and obviously a lot of that is because United have imploded but if Spurs and Arsenal are going to get or Spurs or Arsenal are going to get fourth well they need one of those other four teams to implode really because the, the natural order of things is for those four so I mean Conte has talked about it being a miracle for either Arsenal or Spurs to get fourth given the advantages of the, the, the big four uh, obviously there's <laughs> Uh, an element of self-servingness to that. But I think it will be a big achievement for either of these two teams. Well, uh, as it stands at the moment, Spurs are two points above Arsenal and 15 goals better off on goal difference. So they only need to avoid defeat in their game in which they travel to already relegated Norwich. I know Spurs, Mm. etc., but surely, I mean... Well, part of me wants to say, please stop saying Spurs all the time. Like, you're not the only team that, you know, sometimes loses games and sometimes wins games late on it. Mm. It's kind of the essence of football. But this will be the sixth time that Spurs have faced an already relegated team on the uh, on the last day. And they've lost three out of the five. So there's a glimmer. There's a I glimmer. mean, there was Castle. that famous one in 2016, yeah, the Newcastle yeah. 5-1, when it mm. all... And Newcastle were down to 10 men as well. So yeah, there is there is there is precedent. I mean, slightly different that they had Spurs had kind of seen their title challenge slip away and were kind of in a state of despair. Whereas mm. obviously now they come mm. into this pretty buoyant. Uh, yeah, I, I would be amazed if they if they lost this game. I mean, I also think there's a big question mark over whether Arsenal can beat Everton, given that there's a reasonable chance that we're missing all four of their first choice defenders and are staggering towards the finishing line. Um, Charlie, tell us about Monday night's performance away at Newcastle, which sparked the ire of Granite Xhaka. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot has been made of the sort of mental side of this, and, and there's always going to be that when a team collapses, when they've got a lead so close to the end. But I think ultimately it was a question of quality. And, and you look at the team they had out, and they, because of the injuries they've got, they're playing a lot of squad players regularly. And those squad players are just not Champions League level players. I don't think anyone would say Cedric Suarez, Nuno Tavares, El Nenny and Ketia holding. How are they not in the Champions League? You know, they, <laughs> they are 
sort of Europa League, Europa Conference League level players. And the problem Arsenal have had is that they were fine where they could play maybe one of those guys or they were coming on as a sub. But when that's half your team, and when you've also got Gabriel and Ben White who were clearly not right, and I think had they had any other options and it wasn't such a big game, would not have been playing. You know, and it's it's a it's a competitive league. They're not up against a kind of ragbag bunch. You know, this isn't... Uh, really- the, well, it, like the, the, the standard has improved a hell of a lot. And, you know, Newcastle have been one of the best teams in the league in the second half of the season. I just thought Newcastle were, were so much better than them. But even on paper, you know, it wasn't one where you're kind of looking at before and thinking, you know, Arsenal should have won the game because they're, they're higher up in the table. But I think they just ran out of quality. They didn't have enough quality and they ran out of legs. They just looked absolutely knackered, which I know a lot of people will be saying, how is that possible? They weren't in Europe. But... Yeah, I just think it was a bit, um, just a, a little bit beyond them this season. We'll look at someone like Dan Burton. He he joined Newcastle in January and, you know, Arsenal didn't really make any signings in January and that, that kind of cost him in the end because if you think Jim last Irish season... scored the second goal. Yeah, and last season the Tierney injury really scuppered their, their hopes um, and mm. the same thing happened this year. It's, you know, they've kind of gambled on, on keeping their squad small so they can have a big sort of shopping spree this summer. But that shopping spree would be different if they uh, were in the Champions League, which they still might be, but probably won't be. Mm. I think the January thing is massive, especially when you look at Spurs brought in Bentancur and Kulusevski, two players who they just slotted into their first team and improved massively. And I, I think I think most Arsenal fans are sympathetic to the idea that Arsenal have been burnt by making what seemed like short-term fixes and then being lumbered with them and so I think they would understand okay in January you can't bring players in if you know like the striker position I think Aubameyang really put them in a difficult position there because clearly the situation was untenable and I think I think most supporters have sympathy for Arteta doing what he did the problem was that's fine if you do that in the summer I think that would have actually been quite welcome because then Arsenal could have brought in Tammy Abraham or someone they wanted the problem is, what do you then do in January for such a critical position? If you then bring in someone for a short term, I mean, firstly, I don't think a loan is that realistic. I don't think you're going to get someone that good. But even if you bring someone in on a shorter term contract, well, then you're kind of stuck in another Lacazette situation. I think the, the, the thing that was weird was letting squad players like Callum Chambers go, who they didn't even get a fee for him. And he's someone who can play it right back, can play it centre back, seems, I don't know, this isn't based on any inside knowledge, but seems like a really good pro and not someone who's going to be kind of trouble in the dressing room. I, I just don't understand why when your squad is Maitland, that small, you thin Niles it further. Well. Or, or anti the niles to an extent. At least he, you might then be able to sell after this loan. Hmm. Um, Chambers, to me, was a, was a weird one. And look, I'm sure people are saying the reason they came fifth or would likely come fifth round fourth is not... Callum Chambers but it just seemed like they really doubled down on the whole we're going to have a teeny tiny squad um, and ultimately for that to work they needed to either get be lucky or not be unlucky depending on your perspective and and it did work when they when they didn't have injuries they went on that really good run and before the international break looked set for fourth but you are going to have some injuries and the squad just wasn't deep enough mm. Thursday night football ahoy going to play havoc with the scheduling of uh, all or nothing Arsenal <laughs> I mean can you imagine though all or nothing if if Arsenal do sneak into the Champions League on the last day that is hashtag denouement isn't it that's good mm. 
Indeed. Uh, Spurs away at Norwich, by the way, will also feature Sun Young Min trying to unseat Mo Salah from his dominance of the uh, Golden Boot race. Was it one goal between them? One goal between them. Excellent. Many other things to be decided this weekend, and not all of them in the Premier League. We'll discuss Wickham Sunderland and other things like that next. Alexander Lacazette, why aren't you at training? <clears throat> Not feeling well, boss. <clears throat> Have you seen Emile Smith-Rowe? Oh, he's at the pool. Uh, the recovery pool. <laughs> With a game to go, it seems most Arsenal players are already on holiday. Luckily, you can still count on Paddy Power's bet builder offer to stick around. With money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 plus 4 bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pre-match online bet builder bets only. Min odds 1 to 5 per leg. Max free bet £10 per day. 7-day free bet expiry. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. This Saturday afternoon, who's going to be at Wembley for the League One playoff final? Why? Duncan is. Yes. I'm quite nervous. Are you? Well, a little bit. All right. Wickham taking on Sunderland. The chair boys looking for an immediate return to the championship. The Black Cats... Desperate to end their four-season stretch in League One. Duncan's too nervous to even preview this game. There is an in- extraordinarily in-depth podcast on it, uh, available courtesy of the Totally Football League show, and that Matt Davis-Adams, speaking to people in and around the Wick and Wanderers organisation. By the way, after that game, if you're home in time, Duncan, you can enjoy the Women's Champions League final, uh, which is at 6pm UK time on Saturday live from the Allianz Stadium in Turin. It looks like a belter as well. Barcelona, the holders, against the seven-time champions. Well, you're going to be at Wembley. Duncan Charlotte Harper is going to be at the Allianz Stadium in Turin. And, oh, my word, she joins us now. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in Torino, about 20 minutes from uh, the Allianz Stadium. Lovely stuff. Is there much build-up visible around the town? I haven't actually seen a lot. There's a couple of posters. Nice. Um, but I think, you know, that does reflect the stage that the women's game is still at. I remember walking in Gothenburg when we arrived in Sweden last year and we saw posters as well. But apart from that, there's little um, signage as such. Um, so still a long way to go for the women's game, but, I mean, if there's one game that's going to illustrate the potential and the talent on offer, it's going to be Saturday's final. Yeah. It does read like an absolutely uh, a terrific matchup. Shall uh, Barcelona need no introduction. Lyon probably don't either, with their extraordinary dominance, dominance that was ended by Barcelona themselves just last year. And meeting again in the final, as they did in 2019, when when Leon went 4-0 up in the first 20 minutes. Is it very much about revenge for both sides, this? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a real, real competition between Barcelona and Leon. I think Leon uh, would feel slightly aggrieved about the amount of noise surrounding Barcelona. They're the new kids on the block. Don't forget, uh, Leon have won this title seven times and you know Barcelona became the first side not named Lyon to win the Champions League since 2015 so 
if um, Barcelona can win on Saturday, then the next couple of years are still going to be as feisty as uh, this final on Saturday. Charlotte, Barcelona looks so dominant. I know they've now actually lost a game, but it was a game they're already 5-1 up from the first leg in. Uh, do, you, do you see any way that Leon can stop them? If there's going to be one team to stop them, it will be Leon. Um, we know that Barcelona love possession, but Leon have very experienced heads with Ada Hegerberg, Wendy Renard, Eugenie Le Sommer, Amandine Henry, but they've also got a bursting new talent as well with Ellie Carpenter, Selma Batcher. Um, and Lyon have never lost to Barcelona in their three meetings. They played them in a pre-season tournament in the US last summer and beat them there. So Lyon have the mentality. I think a lot of teams, when they come up against Barcelona for the first time, like Chelsea, like Wolfsburg, they're almost shocked. Lyon have played them. They, they know Barcelona. Um, not as recently as the Barcelona that we know today, but they're, they're not scared of them. Magnificent. It, it, it would be nice to have a slightly closer final than, than the last few. Uh, do, do, do you reckon that's on the cards? I, that's, I can't call it. So I think it's going to be really, really close. And um, unless Barcelona come out of the blocks and blow Leon away like they did against Chelsea, that that first goal will be really important and that will dictate the momentum and who changes first in that chess match of tactics. Um, but yes, I anticipate this to be a very, very close final. Charlotte, who are you going to be rooting for deep down? Which, which story get, you know, grabs you most emotionally out of these two incredible teams? For, for the development, this is going to sound quite cheesy, but for the development of women's football, if, if Leon win again, that's like, right, you know, we've established ourselves. Leon eight Champions League titles, Barcelona won. If Barcelona get back-to-back Champions League, it just makes it even tastier for the years to come. So I think that answer says it all. Charlotte Harper in Turin. It's time. It's time to tackle the big sixth-seventh race in the Premier League. Your matches are Man United at Crystal Palace, where they haven't lost for 31 years. And West Ham, who are two points behind United and eight worse off on goal difference, are away at Brighton, who they are yet to beat in the Premier League in nine meetings. The last six meetings have been drawn, a draw no good to them here. What do you think? I mean, if there's any justice in the world, United should be playing in the Conference League next season. After the season they've had, they they deserve that... Um, I mean, indignity is maybe a strong word because I think the Conference League has been a surprising hit. But for a team like that, it is an indignity, isn't it? And I think uh, the the wider football community would would the, the non United supporting fans anyway would want that. Mm. Well, also West Ham really enjoyed being in the Europa League, took it really seriously, mm. and almost got to the final. So yeah. you know, if they get back in the Europa League, they will definitely be up for it. Whereas I think I mean, you know, Man United it, either, got all the way to the final in the Europa League as well. Didn't yeah, you? but like they were like, and oh, we've got to play a final. Ago. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think United, United will have enough, probably. Partly as well because, yeah, West Ham have that Brighton away trip. And as United have themselves shown, uh, I mean, it often is an easy place to go. They made it look like a really hard place. 
place to go. Um, but yeah, I think that's not one you'd say away banker by any means. And then if you know if United can lift themselves and build on that amazing record that you mentioned at Selhurst Park, and maybe there'll be but you know the new not I mean it's not a new manager bounce, is it? But kind of the presence of a new manager. <laughs> quite niche, but you know, Osmo- we don't, we don't new manager osmosis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I does that work as a new manager bounce? Just, you know, yeah, I think so. Well, we'll yeah. see, I guess. Ralph Rangnick with his last game in charge. No doubt he'll be sitting in a darkened room weeping uh, post-match. <laughs> what, the manager to set United into the Conference League? No, no one wanted to be that guy. I was just imagining, because obviously Patrick Vieira will be back on home turf, I was just imagining Ralph Rangnick trying to kick a fan. I couldn't envisage it. <laughs> I'm not sure that... not sure I like where you're going. With that, Duncan. Uh, could be final game for various United players. Although whether they'll actually take part in this fixture, who can say? But yeah, the advantage significantly with United there in the race for sixth. And the other two games? Do you know what they are? Chelsea-Watford. Uh, Chelsea the Tim Lovejoy Classico, yeah. <laughs> and the other one? Uh, Leicester-Southampton. Correct. Good one. The right. Vestergaard Classico. There you go. <laughs> the Ryan Bertrand Classico. Is that right? The, the Southampton haven't lost 9-0 this season, but they're playing Leicester Classico. Maybe. Ooh. Wow. I mean, that's what we want on the last day. You do want... Obviously, we want drama and tension around relegation and titles, etc. But you do. I do think there is a, there's a certain charm to a game which doesn't mean much on paper, but goes absolutely bananas. Wasn't there a, a Ooh, Tottenham the game? Middlesbrough Man City. Yeah, Middlesbrough Man City is a, or, is a good one. Or West Brom Man United. Yeah, West exactly. Man United. Mm. So, what was the Spurs one you were suggesting, Duncan? They went 5-4 against someone. Oh, against Leicester. They yeah. did, yes, in um, in 2018. Yeah, yeah. In, one, in one of those those mad final day games. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they are. That, that is a, a, a niche uh, <laughs> Premier League offering, but they are great when they happen. <laughs> if, uh, if it's a 9 David James went up front on the last day of the season. Sorry. James. Yes, yes. <laughs> If um, if it's a nine nil you're after, might Chelsea Watford not be uh, a, a candidate? Mm, you know. Well, I looked that... at when when Bristol Rovers um, won their game seven one on the last day to to get promotion. Looked at teams to score seven or more on the last day. Chelsea are the joint most have done it twice, and they so they could go clear as any team to do it three times. Mm. And they are at home to Watford. Watford. Mm. Mm. They did it, didn't they, to win the 2010 Premier League title against Eight nil. Wigan. And yeah. eight nil, and 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 I remember Drog. It was Drogba was going for the golden boot, and it was literally. I mean, they were so dominant. It was kind of Sunday league style. Can we get Didier a goal and sort of rolling the ball across for him? He to, got angry, didn't he? Didn't, didn't he not take a penalty? Wasn't it Lampard? Um, took a penalty. Lucas Piazon took one or something. I think maybe. was it not Lampard? I mean, what what would be amazing just on kind of you know giving away penalties is this weekend if Son's on for the golden boot and yes. Kane has. You know, I mean, obviously such a dedicated goal scorer and has the Premier League record and the Spurs record mm. uh, in his head, whether he would allow uh, whether he would allow Son to take one to go for Well, also because how many goals is he back in the Golden Boot race? I think it's... Oh, Kane. Yeah, he's... He's six. quite a way back. Yeah, but yeah. they're facing Norwich. <laughs> well, it depends how late on it is. I mean... His former yeah. club, he won't want to score against them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, yeah, would he have to do a muted celebration? <laughs> Wait, Kane played for Norwich? Yeah, he went to Norwich on loan. 
He's a one. He's one of those one-man club players that's played actually for about five five clubs. So Norwich, um, Leicester, Leighton Orient, Millwall, Leighton Orient. Yeah, Millwall. It's, yeah, he's been yeah. around. It's journeyman, the journeyman Harry Kane. But <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to see Son. It'd be nice to see someone win the Golden Boot having not scored a penalty. That would be yeah, yes. be rare. Yeah. So and Son has been has been brilliant. I mean, you know, he's he scored more than half his goals with his weaker foot. And to, to to win the Golden Boot doing that and not scoring a penalty, was, mm-hmm. you could argue it's probably the most impressive Golden Boot in Premier League history. If you score more than half your goals with a foot, can it any longer be considered your weaker foot? Does it not, by definition, become your? Well, it gets re reclassified in a ceremony somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's he's up to not far off fifty fifty now. I mean, it's it's mm. incredible. In, in Premier League, I think it's something like forty four, forty five percent of his goals have been with his left. There you go. Well, that's the Premier League weekend. Uh, among the many significant things about it is the fact that it will see a farewell to one or two significant officials, some, beyond officials, some of the people who've been the Premier League for over a decade. And um, above all, Duncan, Mike Dean. Mike Dean. Well, Mike Dean, whose first Premier League game, I think, predates the death of Brian Moore. Which uh, talking about commentators, um, he's been around for a long, long time, and he's uh, he is going to get the Chelsea Watford game for his last ever um, match. Which I think is a good stage for Mike Dean to go out mm. on. You know, a big a big club at home, but possibly some some antics. Um, I did some analysis of all 114 of his red cards in the Premier League. Right. Um, I would quite like him to make it 115. It feels a bit a bit nicer than. The one on four, doesn't it? So let's okay. let's hope he puts in a classic display uh, at Stamford Bridge. His debut was Leicester City against Southampton in 2000. He has had 559 games and 114 red cards. That's quite a lot. And uh, over 2,000 yellow cards. So, yeah, he's been busy. I don't know if you guys have, are across Jeff Winter's uh, autobiography. Anyway, so Jeff Winter released his autobiography, uh, Who's the Bastard in the Black? And just on the topic of final games, his, his uh, or bastard is uh, asterisked. But anyway, in his final, his final game was at Liverpool. And in his autobiography, he writes, uh, I played a little bit of extra time waiting until play was at the cop end before sounding the final shrill blast. The fans behind the goal burst into spontaneous applause. It was longer and louder than normal, even for a big home win. Did they know it was my final visit? Was it applause for me? They are such knowledgeable football people, it would not surprise me. (laughs) There you go, Chelsea fans. Make us all proud. Anyway, we'll be back to salute that and many other momentous moments from the weekend on Monday morning. Do you hope you'll be joining us, listener. It's always nice to have you along. In the meantime, many thanks to Duncan, Charlie, Don, Charlotte, producer Charlie, and everyone else who knows us. We'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. 